Welcome to another episode of Breaking Through the Cloud, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the incredible achievements of women in the tech industry. In each episode, we sit down with women at different stages in their careers to discuss important topics such as work-life balance, career transitions, and building confidence. Through these conversations, we hope to inspire and empower women in the tech industry. We believe that by sharing stories of success and offering mentorship and guidance, we can create a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive tech industry for all. Our goal is to provide actionable insights and practical tips for listeners to navigate their own career journeys. Whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out, breaking through the cloud is something for everyone, and we will and we hope you will continue with us. I am so excited to welcome our guest today, who is just an incredible person and even a more incredible professional. We're welcoming Rosie Seth today. Rosie Seth has nearly two decades of seasoned experience in the tech industry. Armed with an honors in computer science from University of Toronto, she embarked in her career as a technical sales specialist at IBM. Over her impressive 15-year tenure, she ascended to the position of Senior Practice Manager of North America Services and Sales Delivery. After her time at IBM, Rosie joined AWS, where she has served as the Head of Managed Services Partner for Canada for the past five years. In her role, she spearheads the development, management, and growth of the consulting partner ecosystem. Leading a national team, she's dedicated to advancing and accelerating the adoption of cloud practices with systems integrators, solution providers, and managed service providers. Her efforts focus on driving joint go-to-market strategies and enabling customers to achieve their business objectives at scale. Beyond her very impressive professional pursuits, Rosie has generously lent her time to mentor aspiring professionals, serving on committees and boards, and seizing speaking opportunities in women's forums. Rosie's unwavering commitment to giving back has made her a welcome addition to this podcast, and we're thrilled to have her. Rosie, welcome. Thank you, Val. What an introduction. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And yeah. I love our partnership beyond uh, this podcast, but also in our professional uh, lives. I could not agree more. I think it's probably one of my favorite things about the role that I have here at Kalen is just what who I get to engage with and who I get to work alongside is just so many smart, impressive, driven people, and um, you're one of them. So I want to kick it off with really starting at the beginning. We talk a lot about how upbringing, environment, all of the things kind of form who you are in you know your personal life, but also your professional life. So I'd like to little know a little bit more about your trajectory and what brought you into technology, where you grew up, you know, who made Rosie Rosie really at the end of the day um, is where I'd like to start. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know if you know this, Val, but my upbringing took place uh, in a home with two parents who started from scratch, multiple times that is. Um, my parents have a background in academia. So my father has his BSc, he has his MSc, and he's a doctorate. Uh, he was a uni university professor back in back home in India, and my mom was a, a teacher. So she has her Bachelor of Education. Um, when they immigrated to Canada over 30 years ago, um, unfortunately, when they arrived, their degrees and accomplishments were not recognized. So imagine them, you know, the the accomplishments they had over many decades in India. Um, they come here and all of a sudden, all of that differentiation is gone, but also the merit that got them here. Um, my mom had to re-earn her degree. My father took on uh, a teacher assistant role at a local university. Um, so learning about resiliency, that's, that's where it came from. So very early in my childhood, I had to uh, experience a day in and day out. And I, I swear my parents did it uh, with ease. Um, so they put their career aspirations aside they put their egos aside and they actually teamed up and um, started a small business. It was a dress shop. Uh, they hustled through life's challenges uh, in making it a successful endeavor. Um, I saw major grit in everything they did, transpired into results, not only for them, but also for my sister and I. Um, and they put us through school um, and they focused our uh, you know, upbringing on education and uh, continue to allow us to see 
uh, you know, you can you can change course multiple times, and I'll I'll go a bit uh, deeper into that when I talk about um, how I landed at IBM and in my technology career. So, um, my parents were great merchandisers. Um, they took calculated risks. Um, what we understood was, you know, there was no shortcuts, only hard work and determination. Um, and our lives were built around the store. I, I I remember sharing this with my team. I grew up in the back room of my parents' uh, shop. Uh, that was where I spent my school years, and I, I, I was thrilled. I got to eat in the food court every day. I got fries. I got poutine. There's my, you know, uh, Canadian, yeah. <laughs> Canadian flavor of this podcast. Uh, but yeah, they were in business for over 30 years, um, which, oh uh, which is not easy to do in retail. Um, and that work ethic uh, transpired and made an incredible mark on me and who I am today. Um, and I, I was taught that nothing in life comes easy. So for that reason, I'm a go-getter. I say I'm a go-getter. I'm proud to be a go-getter. Um, and doing hard work has always just been the bar. Um, but going into my career, if I um, think about that a bit, I actually wanted a con contrast from the world that I had experienced, which was, you know, entrepreneurship was great. I understood it, saw it every day. I actually wanted to be a programmer. Um, and I, I, I started off in engineering at U of T, but I graduated, I shifted towards computer science, um, and it was okay. It was respected. My parents knew, uh, you know, they wanted an engineer. I came out as a top computer scientist. I, I, I did not end up programming and, uh, I had an opportunity to do a professional year, which is an internship year at IBM, um, which, you know was actually in sales operations. So it was the best of both worlds. I, I did deviate towards uh, a technology career, but definitely still very customer facing. So I'll pause there. I did not know any of that. So thank you for sharing. How amazing. I would just, I, I have a couple of questions. Yes. Um, so when you think about what it would mean to come have so many different degrees and basically come over here and have to start over that is an ins a lot of people i just think in this day and age would not be able to push through that did you see your parents ever kind of struggle with that or were they just like okay this is what it is and kind of went for it because i think that what i find now is just what you said the resilience can be difficult for people to find uh, and be able to like put their ego on a shelf and just say, okay, here's what we have to do to make it here. Yeah, um, I th I think it would it was tremendously difficult for them, right? Yeah. Um, especially the fact that that was the merits in which they were migrating and immigrating to yes. Canada, right? So it differentiated them so much so that they could get that ticket to arrive. But when it was unrecognized here, imagine the setback, right? Um, I, by no means with their degrees, would I say they weren't go-getters. They were, I, I'm pretty sure they did not demonstrate that to my sister and I. Yeah. We were, we were much younger, so maybe we didn't um, recognize uh, that in, in discussions and all of the, you know, the hustling they had to do to course correct and get back on their feet. Um, but what we saw was when they put their mind behind, we're going to open a business, we're going to start in retail, like that was net new. Now we have a long um, stemming family history where my dad has siblings who have done this business. So we did have a, a small enough uh, safety net to know we had connections and how to, you know, arrive at building that as a, as a business um, for my parents. But for the most part, they had to relearn everything and they had to do it in a, in a new environment uh, where our traditional clothing was not uh, the reason behind that uh, retail venture. It was actually bridal wear. It was uh, women's clothing. So they definitely went into un, um, unfamiliar territory. Right. Um, but I, I think what we got to see was how many times they failed and they just got back up. Right. Yes. You know, merchandising isn't easy and uh, retail is very seasonal. So imagine uh, learning that for the first few years. Um, what I remember from all of that was they were super successful. So they you know, my mom was a math teacher. She she knows how to how to yeah. you know, be very profitable and manage her books, whereas my dad was um, 
very savvy with his uh, extended family in, in understanding how to make connections and uh, get to wholesalers, etc. So um, they did put it together. They never allowed us to see it, but it was pretty obvious that uh, learning and failing was just, it was inevitable and it was a continuum. You, you never just uh, bet your business on one season. Um, and we saw that. We th- saw that for decades. Um, living there and then living at the store, obviously, but uh, also working through our teenage years at the store and and seeing how how savvy they were in knowing their clientele, industry trends, um, and it just it showed us a appreciation on uh, you know having that ecosystem of support, um, oh your gosh. vendors, your customers, and listening to your customers. So some of this just became innate skills that we picked up. Um, in just a in a setting in a mall um and then i you know i'll tell you my mom would be apologetic saying i can't believe you used to do your homework in a fitting room or in the back room and my sister and i would end up fighting and they would separate us but we would fight for who gets the fitting room which was much smaller versus the back room or we would go work at uh at what my parents thought was the food court even though we were in the arcade most of most days but like from where i was sitting this was like i was truly having the best years of my life because um, no other kid, like they needed permission. They needed to be taxied to the mall. I spent my whole day at the mall. So um, it's nice that they were able to keep the family intact. Um, But also all everything that poured out of that store was skills that, you know, even to this day are just innate to my sister and I and everything we do uh, in all of our professional relationships, but personal as well. Yeah. I one of my favorite books is uh, "To Sell Is Human" by Daniel Pink because I think a lot of people have this feeling about what it means to be in sales. And when you really think about any role in any industry, I mean, you have to understand your customer, understand what they need. Like it's about seeing people, hearing them, the art of communication. And I think what you just talked about is all of those things are things that I'm sure you've taken and are applicable in all the roles I'm sure you've had. And the resilience piece, the iterative piece is the best, specifically in technology, because it changes constantly. And what we're doing right now wasn't what we were doing even last year. So it's pretty amazing to hear that story. Thank you for sharing it. It's uh, awesome. Um, I want to hear a little bit about your time, you were at IBM a long time. So before we jump into your role at AWS, I'd love to know, like, you started there. Why did you stay for 14 years? Because that's a long time. And I'm sure there was a reason why. And what was that experience like? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, wow, I I learned so much from IBM, um, as anyone does in their first, you know, early career. Um, I was an out-of-school grad. Um, what actually got me into IBM was my um, my internship at school. So my third year, I, I you know, great program where I got to spend 16 months at IBM. Now, there was a pairing that needed to happen to make that happen. Um, so I had to select the top three um, job postings that were available to students. And then the organization also had to pair and select their top three. And when you have a hit, that's when you get um, uh, an interview. So lucky for me, um, IBM was my top and uh, they paired well with me. Um, I think my resume spoke volumes in terms of my customer experience. Um, I was in computer science. I did well, uh, well for math. And I I actually had a, a competing class that was going for more uh, technical roles. So imagine if you know, you have the sales operations role, like I, I am undercutting my ability, but uh, I will say, I think there was less uh, less of my class and other uh, computer science um, universities that had students competing for the sales operations role. So I, I keep telling my dad that, and he's like, no, look, you know, the pairing happened on both sides. Um, so I, I absolutely uh, believe that entry, that 16 months opened up my eyes. Um, and what happened in that 16 months was every four months I was uh, moving into a different function. Um, so I'm very privileged to have had that opportunity. Not everyone gets these type of uh, opportunities. And I went from, you know, spending time with marketing. Definitely sales operation was across the entire time. But I also got to experience tech sales. Um, you know, um, our marketing team helped me understand, you know, 
uh, prospecting and lead generation. Um, and then I got to spend some time in lab services where I saw the professional work on the on the other side of our statements of work. So um, that experience helped highlight where I actually wanted to spend my time, which was um, in technical sales. Um, when I went through the orientation um, during that time, uh, our VP of software group at that time had an inspiring talk. Um, and that talk was rooted like one item that stuck out and stayed with me for a very, very long time. Um, and now it's just common practices, the importance of making time to write really good business cases. Um, and um, he was very inspiring. He was a longtime IBMer and he was the, the VP of software group. So I was so inspired that uh, um, at the end of my 16 month internship, I took his, uh, you know, template that he had shared with us and I wrote a business case to hire me back. Um, and I and I took it right to his desk. Uh, we spent a few times uh, conversing over it, correcting it even uh, during our uh, coffee breaks. Uh, and he said, for for sure, you're going to get a job back. And he was very impressed. And that's what got me back into IBM. Um, and he honored my ask of uh, I enjoyed the technical sales part. I loved uh, dem demonstrating customer value through demos and proof of concepts and proof of technology. Um, so I spent uh, a lot of time embedding that into uh, my value prop for him because I experienced it. I was comfortable with it. Um, and because he had taught us the good framework of a business case, there was a ton of ROI in there uh, that was tied directly to hiring me versus the next person. So that actually landed me my first uh, out of school uh, job at IBM, which was in technical sales. I did that for um, a good enough stretch. Um, and I think I was really good at it. Um, and I spent uh, time again, they put me in retail for all the right reasons, which makes a, a lot of sense. Um, and then I was promoted in, in role. So just leveling up in the role. Um, I, I got mentees and new hires um, that I coached um, for the same role. I moved into the insurance sector. So now I was getting exposure to what I knew really well, retail to a new industry. And I, I felt like IBM is that global institution where you can find every possible job available on the planet. So um, any technology you want to uh, learn, any sector, um, public sector, commercial, but every industry and vertical across the globe. Um, so if I wanted to be a telecom expert or procurement expert or a technologist or even a distinguished engineer, uh, the world the world was my oyster. So that's why I felt like I you know, in hindsight, I did spend a long time there, but I often found every year um, I was learning a new job. I was learning it um, because it had a different lens on it, different industry lens, different customer lens. Um, and I took a promotion after tech sales and I did uh, a role in lab services where I spent um, time as a client partner. I got a new territories. So I had a national coverage in that role, but I also got the Caribbean uh, territory, which was a fun early career. Um, and I did exceptionally well growing, growing the business from um, a services perspective, which was new to me. Um, and then a unique uh, situation occurred, a rare case when um, I had returned from my uh, second, uh, first or second, my perhaps my second, yes, uh, maternity leave where I was sought out to lead the delivery organization. Um, so now I was moving from client partner to actually leading the practice. It was a dual role. I had uh, pre-sales architects. I had delivery consultants. Um, sadly, there were at that time it was all male dominated. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I experienced uh, a ton of. Am I ready for this? Can I do this? I was of uh, a you know shorter tenure at IBM, but also um, I felt like what was eating away at my own confidence was. Am I the youngest one here? And I'm leading this very tenured team. Um, but it was a it was a promotion. You know, it, it came with the challenges. I doubt myself, but I, I was getting a promotion, a real big, large responsibility. Um, and I had the most fun doing that job. Um, I embarked on my transition to management. I learned um, how to change my mindset. I was that go-getter, always wanted my hands on everything. Um, and I had to learn to scale through others. I had to learn delegation. I had to, you know, I realized very, you know, a little too late when I wasn't setting a clear vision. So all of those learnings came from that time. 
Um, and I think I grew the most in that, um, you know, that role, most definitely. Um, but there came a time when I, I started to believe like the IBM, like piece of my role I could do in my sleep. I had a network of resources. I, I could navigate most challenges very easily with a customer or internally, except um, um, when I got this very big mandate to now pivot the entire delivery org to, to the cloud. So now we were changing all of our offerings. Uh, this is not going very far back. I've been at AWS five years, so you know exactly the time. Um, we had an acquisition, we had a cloud mandate, and um, I had never built a new um, go-to-market. So we were really good at selling what we were good at. We were optimizing those offerings and we were winning a lot of business, but now we had to re re-architect our entire team, rescale the whole team. And that's when I, I realized now, wow, what a great challenge. Um, I can't just rely on doing my job um, in, you know, in this um, uh, fashion where I, I just knew how to get through every challenge. Um, so what I did at that time, Val, you're going to laugh, is I Googled uh, the AWS cloud adoption framework <laughs> and I found... I found as I read more and more, um, it was it was available. It was generally like publicly available to everyone. So my team read it, um, and I found myself getting deeper and deeper into it. So I was hungry to learn, hungry to read more. I even opened um, a free tier account. I downloaded white papers, and my husband's like, "I can't get you to stop reading." Um, and what I learned from that, just that you know, a couple weeks of experience was how much it had piqued my curiosity. Um, and I was hooked not only to the technology and um, the transformation we all were going to undergo um, for our organizations and our, and our customers, um, but I realized I hadn't learned for a long time. Um, and I had a choice to make. Um, either I take a page from the book that I was reading, uh, rewrite it at IBM, or I just insert a new page and come uh, come to Amazon, where um, I, I get to just learn from other other leaders who have already um, acknowledged and understood um, that that transformation was necessary. So the rest was history. I applied online. I got the interview, um, and what really got me was not just the fact that the technology and the platform and the approach was great, but um, the amount of time I spent on their leadership principles and their day one culture and learning everything that was uh, on LinkedIn available through groups and their website. Um, I was deeply customer first, um, customer centric even, um, but Amazon's approach to that. And as I got deeper into it, I really understood it wasn't just making the customer happy or doing what the customer wants us to do. If they don't want to spend, we don't spend. No, it was really to enrich the customer in having the data and understanding um, the needs that they didn't have. Uh, sorry, the needs that they didn't um, articulate well. And if it was truly um, top of mind for them, attacking that together. Um, so the customer obsession piece um, and the approach we take to our day one culture, which is um, functioning like a startup, innovating on their behalf, um, that's where I, I truly felt like it wasn't about just making customers happy. It was doing by right, doing right by the customer, even when they they didn't fully uh, see that, and helping them cross into that a realm where you could have meaningful meaningful partnership conversations um, to help um, help them with their transformation or their business problem. Um, and that's that's the piece uh, I, I I think I spent the most time on uh, when I truly believed um, this organization was different. I, I researched them. I went through the interview process, and uh, that was very long, by the way. <laughs> it, uh, it is for good reason. But um, I think I had never been so excited uh, through that entire process, um, and I haven't looked back. It's been five years. That's amazing. I want to know because I I. I... I heard a couple of things that I wrote down. Like I, one, you, I, it sounded to me like you did get to the point where you were very clearly, like you would hit a ceiling of what you saw as your development at IBM and your ability to grow and to learn. And 
Um, what I've learned through doing this podcast is a lot of people like that's what causes people to leave organizations is when they feel as though they aren't able to grow or develop or learn or expand in the way that they believe that they can. Even if in that moment they don't know that's exactly why, but looking back, um, were you scared to leave? It does not sound like to me that you were at yeah. all, but I think a lot of people who are at a company for a long time, like there's always an element of like, can I do this again, have the same level of success at a new place? It can be really scary. Yeah. Um, so stepping back to that, um, how I felt in at IBM was I yeah. actually the I think I was in that role also two and a half years in leadership when I realized what I was mandated, why I was brought in. Remember, I was tapped on the shoulder yeah. saying, we think we need you on this side of the equation, yeah. not pre-selling because you've grown the business. We actually have to deliver on everything you're promising to your customer. And our organization at that time was not customer obsessed in any which way. We Got were it. contract, contractual obligations obsessed, right? So what's in scope, what's not? And it, you know, the approach, like any, any, um, any project, you're not going to hit all of your deliverables on time, in budget, um, scope changes even. So we were in lab services. We would do extended retainers as well. So these are not very, you know, you're in and out. Um, these were project-oriented, deliverable-based projects. Um, and what I spent the most time understanding was how do we build contracts that were, we would take more risk and allow the customer more f flexibility. We were not an organization that wanted to do fixed price as most vendors, like we want to help enable the customer to uh, adopt new technologies, but we, we are not a consulting arm that wants to stay beyond, uh, you know, that adoption. Um, and that's where partners come in even for uh, uh, that vendor. Um, but what we weren't doing really well was handling when we did have customer escalations. And I felt like my job was complete when I had taught that organization on an escalation is not a bad thing. The customer is actually speaking to us more transparently and telling yeah. us where we need to fix things so that they can get the outcome they had desired. Um, and that sometimes isn't as black and white as deliverables. It is the partnership in which we operate, uh, their desired outcome through that process was very different. Um, so we needed to lean in. We needed to learn to listen before we solve. And some of that patience I had and from my pre-sales experience that the delivery team uh, may not have been uh, focused on it. But that was my mandate. That's like the, the value I was supposed to provide is um, catch those, learn from it. Let's change our processes and culture and I, I feel like even the the cloud when uh, when we had to move to the cloud, uh, go to market and re replatform and rebuild our managed services, that was the second part of the task that you know was inevitable once I was enrolled. But the job that I was given, I felt like I had completed it. So there was this sense of I was tasked to do this. We're winning business again. We have brought down escalations. Uh, customers are loving us. We're expanding our business and uh, existing accounts. All of the trailing indications were very positive, and our leading indications were now changing because we were going to move towards reoccurring uh, revenue and had to create uh, create new offerings. So I felt like uh, when I did make the decision to start researching and thinking about, oh, do I really want to do the next part of this task and challenge that's uh, upon me here or elsewhere? I really truly felt I had closed one chapter of the job I had taken. So it made it easier. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, definitely when I pivoted and started to research it, the the desire was much higher. Uh, yeah. Because it was truly, everything was uh, tied up in a nice bowl for what I wanted to accomplish. Well, I love that. I'm, I think before we get into kind of the, the part that we, we like to talk about actual like practical tips and real examples for our audience, I want to know a little bit more. You talked about going through the AWS loop in the interview process. You've been there five years, so I'd love for you to give just some context around the role and how it's even potentially changed for you over the five years, whether in scope, but also as a company, I mean, the growth that AWS has experienced to be 80 plus 
you know, billion dollar business and just seeing that arc over time has been insane for those people like me who worked alongside you all. But I think we'd love to hear from your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So five years at Amazon, I actually had my anniversary over the summer. I'm a yellow badger now. Congrats. Um, Thank you. Uh, All that means is I speak in leadership principles all all the time. My, so my team, I think you summarized it really well. Um, you know, my team's responsibility is to empower our Canadian partner ecosystem. Um, and that's uh, partners that are uh, active uh, north of the border in Canada, but it doesn't restrict the type of partners uh, we have globally that also spend time with us. Um, I have a very dynamic team. Um, we have a diverse set of partners, coast to coast, all shapes and sizes. Um, we we cover consulting partners, solution providers, managed services partners, and we work even with our ISV and marketplace partners. Um, as our as actually, this is part of that second uh, question you asked me is like we're finding our partners are now partnering with other partners over the last few years because we have this uh, uh, we have reached that inflection point where customers expect that to happen, especially with platforms like um, uh, AWS Marketplace that is uh, being adoptive, uh, adopted by our customers, but also our partners. And we're seeing these new synergies, um, especially in the last two and a half years, I would say, uh, between our systems integrators, but our, our channel partners as well with our ISV ecosystem of partners. Um, so we, we take great pride in helping our partners transform their businesses, um, helping them develop uh, the business case uh, to stand up a cloud practice on AWS. Um, and we support that, support our partners through, you know, enablement, technical and sales. Uh, we help them bring new offerings uh, to market for customers. Um, and we help them co-sell uh, with us, with our uh, organizations um, to reach more customers and uh, reach our customers jointly. Um, now, the changes over the last uh, five years that I've seen, this is a very big question. Um, uh, the ones that I'm most proud of are the two new leadership principles that were added. Um, so everything we do is rooted in our leadership principles. We added two additional ones. We have 16 now. Uh, one was strive to be Earth's best uh, employer. And then the second one is uh, success set scale brings us broader responsibility. So uh, there is a because I, I mentioned our day one culture, which is super specific on working backwards from our customers and obsessing over their needs. Um, now, with our new leadership principles, we have put enough focus, even though it existed before, but publicly um, and very proudly, even internally, um, greater focus on our employees' development and growth um, and our commitment to our community. So, uh, you know, Amazon co-founded the, uh, the Climate Pledge. Um, and we have a commitment uh, to be net zero carbon um, across our business by 2040, uh, which is 10 years ahead of uh, the Paris Agreement. So many of um, you know many of the the, the values that uh, we've always had internally are now um, very clear in these two leadership principles. That's the ones I I uh, I love in in terms of the changes in the recent time. Um, a major shift that I personally observed is the ex exponential growth in the number of partners that are active, at least um, in North America. Um, Obviously, I'm closer to the Canadian business. Um, And that's really because our partners are in the forefront of everything that Amazon and AWS does. Um, And scaling to our partner has become a key pillar to our business strategy. Um, And that's that's helping us show up uh, with our partners in everything we do. So, um, you know, an example would be, you know, generative AI and industry solutions. Our partners are actually leading the charge and taking our new new services and features and developing solutions on behalf of our customers who um, who seek um, specialized uh, use case solutions. Um, I've also seen that our obsession about gaming customer and partner feedback still guides um, where we take our platform and services and innovation, but also improving our processes internally. Um, you know, there's a huge focus on seamless partnering experience. A good example, as I shared, was um, as we see the adoption of AWS Marketplace, 
um, that's all been um, our features and how how we expect innovation to happen on that platform is guided by um, you know feedback from our systems integrators and consulting partners, but also our ISV partner ecosystem and what customers are asking for. Um, so many things, although uh, we've seen great uh, growth in in business and adoption, many things are still very rooted in our in our culture, and we continue to use that as the you know leapfrog into uh, the the next generation of our services and platform offerings. Um, I think the leadership principles from at least a partner perspective and an outsider looking in are so helpful. A framework for decision making, a framework to, to your point, keep everybody honest about the decisions because small things add up. And if you are not thoughtful about how those leadership principles show up in something minute and how that impacts something even potentially greater, I think you can lose the culture and the drive and the growth. I mean, um, I'm a believer of only the paranoid survive. And while that can sound right. scary, I do think you have to have a level of anxiety about what are we missing? But I think the leadership principles give you that framework to question, to think big. 100%. Yeah. Um, and it's we've, um, you know, it's it's front and center in everything we do internally now. Um, if you, I know Val, you've been around us uh, long enough to know, you know, uh, our mental model is as as we do any planning, as we develop new uh, processes or uh, services and solutions, we always leave an empty chair in the in the in a in a meeting room, um, which is the customer's chair. If the customer was in the room, how would we act? How, what would the customer say? And it's the voice of the customer. Now imagine all of that also translating to. You know, are we bettering our our um, the earth? Are we are we looking at sustainable practices? Um, the same thing with our builders. If there's a chair in the room, it's our builder. Are we providing the best employee experience? Are we providing growth? Are we giving equal opportunity? Are we looking at this from a diverse force perspective? So, um, although it occurs, this makes it front and center, which is um, as equal as customer obsession. And I think it's translating into better solutions for all of us um, as consumers, as well as, uh, you know, good vendors to our partners and to our customers. So 100%, I, I feel like it's weaved into everything. It just, it does not go unnoticed. I, I, I cannot agree more. So I want to get, you've talked about just uh, your career and your experience, and you've been so successful and you're clearly very intelligent, thoughtful, and analytical, and all of the things. But I think it's, I go back to the uh, the old saying of, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I'm curious about the support systems and networks that have been instrumental in your professional growth and development. As a professional, a woman in technology, like, I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Um. It, it's surprising when I reflect on that um, in this, uh, in you know, in hindsight. Um, I was, I would say, champions. Hundred percent, I've had champions. Um, did I know they were my champions as things were unfolding for me? Hundred percent, I never had. Um, I, I, I've never been good at prioritizing time with my mentors. I've always identified mentors, some very vocally, some very formally, informally. But I don't think I've prioritized being mentored um, personally. I think, uh, or I, I, I believe I should know what that exit criteria is, and I'm just hard on myself. But um, I have to say, I learned the hard way. So uh, what I've realized is, if I reflect on all of the big um, wins that I've had, uh, either professionally or personally, or just uh, in between, there's always been a champion. And sometimes that champion um, has been a known individual or, you know, when you reflect, you realize there was this individual who, who made it happen for you. Um, and I, I actually value my present day mentors much more because now I have that uh, base of knowledge that I didn't have uh, early in my career. Um, so a lot of my champions have become my mentors when it should have been the other way around. So. Um, I, I feel like I was doing it wrong until I saw what good looks like. Um, so what I would say is now that um, I know they existed, um, 
I make time to be very prepared to being mentored. And I, I you know, I, I say uh, usually when I get approached to mentor someone else, I ask them, you know, um, the questions um, to poke at, you know, are you getting organized behind what you want to achieve with this one individual or two or three? Um, my tip is I, I actually create a, a value chart <clears throat> and the value chart is not very precise. It's here's what my professional uh, landscape looks like, the skills I know I need to develop, the skills I don't have today. And I actually show that to my uh, mentors, uh, the ones I'm comfortable with and saying, what have I missed? You know, you might be someone with a lot more tenure or you're uh, an individual who's um, in a business area that I desire to learn more about. What am I missing in my um, in my chart? Um, and that goes to make for a very, very, it's an icebreaker almost, right? Um, they get to understand how you're thinking about it. They get to understand your perspective on your own self-awareness of where you are in your career. Um, and it's not easy to do. But what I've learned is it does not have to be perfect. Um, half the time, the boxes were empty. Um, and I was able to spend enough time with individuals to now have a full chart. And what that does is it puts a box of many different things I want to learn. Some things are very tactical. Other things are very strategic. And I will tell you, 50% of the boxes are usually without a name because I haven't found the mentor. Um, but the ones that have been successfully filled, um, I focus there. I prepare for those discussions. I have an exit criteria, um, and it's very known to the mentor. So I, 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 I use their time while I use, um, you know, I let them know sometimes I just want to ideate, um, your, you know, your role for now in this relationship is to help me ideate. Um, and I, I remember having one mentor who, who helped me get to this framework was um, she's like, Rosie, you keep talking yourself out of really good opportunities because you're so fixated on doing the opportunity, not seeing the potential it's going to have for your future growth. And um, she said it more eloquently uh, and uh, explained why um, sometimes may not fit in all the work we have to do. And it may look like a stretch assignment. It might be even disguised as your next career opportunity. But it was very hard for me to see how that could be a stepping stone for a skill that I may need in the future. So um, some of my mentors who are, you know, have this great wisdom, uh, are very tenured, will provide that um, foresight that may not exist for me today. While my mentees uh, spend more time reverse mentoring me telling me how to be a better mentor because uh, there's many things that are needed today for uh, early career um, that weren't a challenge for me um, because I, I had that grit mindset. So now I find my mentees are actually helping me grow uh, and pivot towards um, learning from them versus coming to the equation to provide mentoring. Um, I, I think I leave uh, with a lot to learn and how to change my approach as well. So um, I think the only other thing I would say on this topic is um, it's still very hard for me to distinguish, um, you know, who, who would be my champion. But I think good mentoring would eventually lead to having a subset of champions that are working on your behalf. Um, and the only major learning from having, you know, 15 real mentors that I formalized my relationship with over the years is it's not a lifelong commitment. I, I find like when you try to match yourself with a mentor, you're also trying to find a good friend or uh, someone who's going to make you feel good. And um, once I took that away from the equation and said, you know, your purpose here is to help me build a skill. Your purpose is to help me vet good future opportunities. I realized um, they don't have to be your mentors for life. Um, and it's okay to walk away from mentoring, but closing that, you know, saying I was super successful for this, uh, even though it may be a few months of mentoring that got you to the outcome you arrived at. So it's okay to do that. It's okay to set expectations. But I, I find like for the longest time, I was trying to find friends for life, mentors for life. Um, and that's why it wasn't working. We were covering, t uh, trying to cover way too much ground and it was not going to afford me, um, what I actually required at the time. I love that. 
I that first off, I think that that framework is so helpful because often if I'm approached to mentor someone, I think having some context of here's where I am, here's here's what I perceive my gaps, my strengths, and tactically what I want to learn and the questions I want to ask would be beyond helpful. That's not often what happens. And I think you've just provided a framework to make the most from both sides. So that's amazing. Um, I want to kind of uh, switch gears for a minute. We talk about this with almost every uh, guest on this podcast because I think it's important and can be tricky to navigate. Be curious about encountering biases in your career or discrimination and navigating those. You you mentioned a little bit earlier that you took over a team that was predominantly men. I think there are a lot of people that tune into this podcast that could be in a situation just knowing how to handle those things professionally and with grace is important. Yeah, I, I think there there's definitely many. Um, I, I think some of it is my own biases, my own biases uh, that hampered my own confidence. Wow. Um, I don't think I would have said that, you know, 10 years ago, um, but I'll give you a few examples. So um, when I had my, the desire to grow my family, I got married. We knew we wanted to have children. I got pregnant. Um, my first maternity leave, we cut it short. Um, you know, I felt like I needed to cut it short. And in, in Canada at the time in Ontario, we could have a maternity leave that was shared for up to 12 months. Um, so, you know, first time mom would have loved to stay, but I actually felt like I got it in my head that, you know, my job may not be there. I wouldn't be taken seriously. And I, I went back too early. Um, I was physically and men mentally not able to, um, you know, I, I shared this many with many folks now is like, even when I transitioned back, I was traveling with my baby. My mom was, you know, cutting an airline ticket and joining me. Um, should it have been that way? Um, it worked for our family, but I didn't realize um, it didn't have to be that way. So I, I took it upon myself um, to to fix how I perceived I, I needed to be seen. Um, and then the same goes for, you know, a person of color. Um, oftentimes when I, I meet uh, new customers or vendors or partners or anyone who doesn't know me uh, closely is like, oh, you're, you know, you're from India. You were born there. Um, your English isn't bad. Where are you from? Right. It's it just it bothers you to like it bothered me quite a bit. And how do you reestablish credibility over and over again when that's that's the icebreaker? It shouldn't be that. Um, but, you know, I, I've been here for over 30 years. Uh, when I first came, I experienced it in in school. Um, I experienced it in high school and university and my first job. And, you know, throughout my career, every time I have to go and reestablish credibility with new clients, etc., um, it comes playfully at times. Sometimes it was uh, very direct. Um, so it just it got to becoming a normal and, you know, question and answer for me where it shouldn't have been. Um, so I, I think a lot of these, uh, I guess, bias and discrimination existed in my head. And it it held me back for a long time uh, because I, I would anticipate these type of questions or I would anticipate my thought process. And that was what was occupying my headspace versus being the best I can be, right, regardless of that. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had this very strong uh, female figure, figures, I would say, because uh, the history on my mom, like when you have that at home and you have a sister who also experienced the same upbringing, you just let that off to the side. You take it in stride and you push through it like any other challenge. Um, so I, I have to say dealing with all of that was um, very much rooted in everything I did, just showing up somewhere. So when you experienced other forms of discrimination where, um, honestly, I, 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 I have to say I took, I took the job when I had 12 male consultants uh, under me in, in that practice lead job. I had one female peer leader only. The rest were all male. Um, my leadership was all male. Um, I was in a good place because they didn't actually... I, I didn't experience it. Um, I, I think I, IBM was a very welcoming organization that had great practices and training. Um, 
but not everyone has that. Like I was privileged to be amongst uh, great leaders. I had that champion uh, of a leader who put me in a big job, um, but it was my own head because um, all of that encounters elsewhere or even with customers, I, I just, I was feeding myself the wrong food in my head uh, in situations. So I was, my own confidence was, um, uh, you know, it was killed at the door. Um, and so now when I, when I do encounter challenges, I treat them all the same. So one of the tactics is um, put biases and discrimination aside. Um, any challenge that comes my way, um, you know, I don't label it as, as a setback or a shortfall or, um, and I'll give you an example. So if I'm in a room and um, someone has a great idea that I thought about doing but didn't do, um, and it comes across as uh, their idea is something I didn't consider and my my solution was lacking that, the first thing I'm going to think to myself is not, oh, how did I miss that? Oh, stupid me. No, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to ask myself a question. What, uh, what, what tools and resources did this person have uh, available to them in order to get that um, idea or data? And how do I better myself? So the minute I question myself, it allows me to grow and think about um, if it really bothered me, I need to learn something new. And therefore, I'm not going to act um, on feeling dumb at times when I do, but rather I'm going to start solving in my head on, oh, that's a great idea. I should have I am going to go do something about learning how how that came about and really action it with curiosity. Um, and I, I feel like that's because all of the other times in my head, I was uh, doubting myself rather than just allowing it to go push up the very side of my head or release it out of my head that no one's like have good intention. Think about it. Think about every situation from um, being curious um, and some of that is just helps me cope in my head about not feeling like I'm doing it to myself or labeling myself. And, um, a large part of that again, is that upbringing where you are smart, you are analytical, you can overcome challenges. Well, no, I don't have to, I can fail and just dust myself off and try again. So, um, I think I'm in a far better place now. Uh, but for a very long time, I was living um, living under the whole, you got to be perfect. You got to be great. Any challenge is something you can charge through. So, um, yeah. That's Little amazing. I know. I I will just say I was, I was lost thinking about how many things you can course correct by just keeping your own internal thought process from right. a place of positive intent and curiosity and learning before you're making judgments, assumptions, actions. Um, so I think that that is so powerful. And the the idea that your own biases and potentially viewpoints on yourself were probably the most destructive at times is like so fascinating because I would probably think similarly, candidly, like outward discrimination for me has been few and far between I don't come from the same background or experience as you but it's man I love what you said because also I think it gives anybody listening something that they can immediately adjust of just taking a step back which, yeah and Val uh, I would say that's step one there's other encounters where you just need to build backbone right like if you Amazon yeah. talk it's like one is don't stop at the door because yeah. that you know, the, the tactic I just shared is just don't do this to yourself where the situation yes. just allows you to be uh, the one who has to fix it. When you feel passionate, you have to exercise and build this muscle on having backbone. You know, I've done my research. I've done this. How did I miss this? And put, you know, um, build build a safety net with the folks around you that it's okay to think out loud and solve with others. Um, and I, I feel like that that is not easy to do. That takes practice. Um, and, uh, again, I feel like I'm in a place of privilege at Amazon where that's actually valued, right? Yeah. Uh, you can demonstrate backbone, but, uh, to do it effectively, you should have real confidence in the place of data that you're coming to the, um, conversation with, and then be okay to disagree, uh, commit if, if you're shown another route, um, and then commit wholly to understanding where you were wrong, reassess your data, come back and recycle through that, right? So that's not something that's innate. 
Um, I feel like um, our organization does allow us to build that muscle over and over again in a very safe zone. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think um, I think most women, um, even when I talk to my mentors, is like um, we thrive if given that environment. Um, so. Uh, I, I think what we do is we stop at the door, which uh, which was like your own hat. If we can overcome that and participate, um, I, I think in any environment, um, you know, standing your ground with um, having good data allows for a very great conversation. Oh, I could not agree more. I I, I love your perspective. Um, so I have, uh, two more questions before we wrap up. Um, I want to understand a little bit more about how you balance demands of personal professional you already shared you have taken paternity leaves and maybe not you know taken as much time as you might maybe needed um i personally am not a balanced individual and i've just come to accept that and kind of reframe it in my head of what balance means to me I'm curious about how you do it, what it means to use specific strategies you use and employ. Well, thanks for, yeah, I, I I was actually asked this question at a, at a recent talk we did on vulnerability and leadership. And um, I, you know, I was, someone actually said, how do you balance it? And I'm like, I don't, then <laughs> I don't, I don't strive to, I, I would say um, that would be a lie. Uh, you know, you can change balance, you can change harmony, whatever. Um, to each their own. Um, I'm blessed. I, I, I do have to say uh, what's working for me is um, I have a very supportive husband um, and I have two sets of retired parents that live in a very short distance uh, where we reside. Um, so I, I, I know most, most folks don't have uh, a support system like that. And I'm very grateful, um, but it was by design. We chose to have this because um, there's many things we aspire to do, um, but we didn't want to forego all of the the great stuff of our childhood. And um, between my husband and I, we have been around extended families, uh, siblings. Um, so although it's difficult on most days, um, we do we do have the uh, you know um, safety net of relying more. Yes. My mom yeah. would say, I ring the doorbell, I leave my kids on the on the, the lawn sometimes saying, I got to go and there's no questions asked. The kids love being there. Um, but I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, I make it sound easy. It's not that easy. I, I mean, we're very present in our children's lives. And that means sometimes um, our work does have to um, be second. Um, although, you know, I don't, I don't always make it appear that way. But it is, you have to be ruthless in prioritization Rough, um, yeah. we're in an environment at least in tech things move fast you can't be on top of everything and i i think we we at least myself i try to be good at everything i do and something's got to give so it's it's that hierarchy you got to decide uh where can you come back and pick up uh whereas what is critical and honestly i i do try to trump um my children and all of the all of the activities that they have in their lives, like um, we signed them up because we didn't have it when we were growing up. Our children couldn't give us that. Uh, sorry, our parents couldn't give us that. So um, it wasn't just to keep them, um, you know, occupied or we really strive to give them um, opportunities that uh, we believe it's going to make them very, you know, whole uh, children um, and things they desire to do, right? And if they want to change and try something else, we we look at that as a family and we subscribe to it, but we make a commitment together. Um, and that means being present while while those activities take place. So my team will tell you there's oftentimes, uh, I do talk about all of the activities I have with my children, how I, I make trade-offs because I want them to do the same, right? Uh, we do work hard, but uh, some things are just nothing you can revert back to and regain, um, you know, after a few years when they're older. So um, the the two or three th tactics that I did use that helped me through my day, um, I do want to share that. So one yes, is please. I have this, I, I call it earning it. So because we do so many tasks in a day and everything seems urgent and critical, I try to do three activities and I do one that is um, taking up my headspace that might not be, you know, work related. So 
um, not only is this something, you know, weekends and evenings, even during the day, I found more sanity in my work where it's like, I have to pick up something from the grocery store. So if I do one, two or three, whatever items I put for the day, um, I earn that time to go and do something that's occupying my headspace because it's, if it's at the back of my head, it's not allowing me to do the other things effectively. So I, I do try to say, after I do these two things, I'm going to reward myself, squeeze in something personal, um, and then go at it that way. The second thing I learned um, that's really worked well for our entire family dynamic is a transition between, and we did this in the COVID uh, time when it was hard to transition the entire family because everyone's working and doing things at different timings. Um, so we go for a family walk uh, at the end uh, at the end of the day. Mostly my husband and my kids uh, do opt out. But that time is like no phones. It's a full, you know, we'll do a five kilometer walk and it transitions us to the evening where you don't feel that desire um, to, to, you know, recount all of the other things that are uh, on your list uh, for work, which can wait till the next day. Um, and then the last is the one I mentioned is like uh, being accountable for what you commit to. So with my children, you know, early on, I realized I, I, I committed to being at every soccer game or uh, swim meet, uh, but I was a living uh, living up to my word and the commitments to the children. So we make those commitments together and they hold me accountable without any guilt. So it doesn't always work out, but um, I think uh, everyone understanding that you're trying your best and having that conversation with the children really uh, allows them to give me a hall pass when I need it. Uh, but it does mean that I actually choose uh, what I said I would do first on mo most occasions. Um, but again, many different tactics uh, ahead of that before we found something that works. I love that. I, I struggled massively with being able to like move through from work into mom, wife after being on, you know, 15 different Zoom meetings and coming downstairs. And I think that is just real of like, it is. You are going, we used, I used to have a commute. I used to be able to be in a horror or, I mean, I was traveling every other week. I used to have that time to make the shift. And I, when you, that was removed, we all had to think about like, okay, how do we do this? For me, I should be taking a walk. I just put on comfy clothes. That works too. That yeah. works too. We've tried many uh, things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I love it. That's so helpful. I think, like I said, we've really tried to use this platform to get real world like try this because i think some of it is testing and experimenting of what works and you're like okay that didn't work let me try something else um iterating if you will my last question before we wrap up is a question i like to ask everybody if you could travel back in time and give a piece of advice one nugget of wisdom to 22 year old rosie what would that be and yeah, I I have to say, um, I think I would tell myself every scenario doesn't need 100% of me, which, uh, you know, is the analytical mean, uh, the precision a decision requires or the energy. Um, I, I think what I've learned over the years is this mental model um, that uh, even Amazon has is uh, one way or two way door decisions, right? Like one way is you go in, you know, um, you can't come back out. Like it, it's going to impact something that can't be undone. Whereas a two-way door decision is like you go in through one door and you can come back. Um, and you might be wrong. You might be right. Um, but nothing nothing breaks if you're wrong. Um, and I, I feel like if I had to recollect everything that I've focused or over-focused my time and energy on in past, most of the decisions were two-way door decisions. It's just uh, they were all perceived as one-way door decisions because I had this desire to be perfect in analytical, um, you know, and analytical, I mean, like I would double check my work when we all knew it was accurate. Um, did it even need any analytics to make a decision? No, half the times it didn't. So I, I find um, I used to wander into too much before making a decision and now you know, um, now this is something that builds over time. You know, going with your gut sometimes is fine. You're going to have a happier life, Rosie, uh, if you if you stress less about how the decisions made, 
but rather making the decision and just um, using a model such as this, right? What's the worst that could happen if I make this decision quickly? And I, I think that would have freed myself to more experiences. Um, I think making some of the toughest decisions in my life would have been more um, enjoyable, even though at, even the stressful ones. Um, so I, I, I think I do a lot more of that now. And it's just like, go with the flow. Um, but realizing that many things are not going to break the world or your family or the security of your family. Um, so it's, it's, it's okay to go faster at times and, and absorb your time to the things that truly matter. Uh -huh. um, so, that. Yeah. Rosie, thank you so much for your transparency, your, just your ability to actually give tactical examples. I think you shared a lot of wisdom. I'm going to go back and listen to this, which uh, for me is always a challenge just hearing my own voice, but this was amazing. I learned more about you and um, I've taken a lot away from today. So I'm so grateful. I know how busy you are. And like you said, ruthless prioritization. And I'm grateful that this made it on the list. 100%. Yes. Thank you so much, Val. I, I continue to learn a lot from you. Um, and thank you for putting these series together. I do, I do spend time uh, listening to many of them on different devices, but uh, continue to lead the charge and um, looking forward to hearing your voice and mine uh, when we replay this. Thank you so much. Have a great uh, rest of your week. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review on the platform you're listening on. And please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at podcast at kalent.com and you can find the email address in the description below. Thank you again and we'll see you next time.